This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Today we're going to be discussing how to master free will. And this shir is adapted from the uh, great foundation series of the Rosh Shiva of Torah Zatzal, Rav Noah Weinberg, his memory be for a blessing. Um, he taught us that there are five levels of mastering free will. And here we, in this class, we go into the depth of those five in order to master free will ourselves. And what it means to master free will, ultimately, is to become a masterful human being. Because what makes you unique over the animal kingdom is free will. Your ability to make cognitive choices is what makes you unique in this world. Meaning if you put a primate in an MRI or you put a human in an MRI, they're not going to come out that differently. The difference is the human being who has this spiritual side to him, gives a, it gives him a different level of free will. See, a primate still may decide between banana and nuts, you know, and it's making a choice. Whereas a human being has all these moral choices he's making. A human being has uh, just a whole, whole more complex level of, of choice that he or she makes. And therefore, by becoming a master of free will, you are becoming a master of being a human being. Or shall we say a masterful human being? Got that? So, becoming a master of free will is becoming a masterful human being. You want to be a masterful human being, a masterful chooser? Because what makes you unique over the animal kingdom is free will. So, to be a masterful human being means you've got to master free choice. So, there are actually five levels of free will. And we're going to start with the first level. So there's five levels of mastering free will. Okay? So level number one is to const, is the word constant. And constant means that to be a master of free will, you have to constantly choose. Get present to the choices that you have now available to you. Now, most people only think of like big choices. Like, for example, the people in this room are people who chose to come to Israel. But you may have noticed that your choice ended after you got on the airplane. And then you came to Israel, and now you're in Jerusalem. <coughs> now you got to Jerusalem. But did you choose to be in Jerusalem? Or did you just wake up here this morning? Um, those who are watching this on their computer screen, you know, you chose to watch this. So you maybe have even greater free will than the people in this classroom who chose... Um, well, actually, you guys chose to come to this class. Or maybe it's just on the schedule. You come to this class because you came to this class, or are you just doing the central schedule? What's your name? 
Yitzchak. Yitzchak, right. Did you come here, Yitzchak, just because this is the Essentials program, or you came specifically to this class? <laughs> Eli, you came to this class, or you're in the schedule? So everyone now choose to be in this room right now. Choose to be with me this hour. Choose to be in Jerusalem. Forget the fact that you woke up here. As if someone is saying to you, would you like to go to Jerusalem? And you say, yes. And now, boom, here you are. Choose to be here now. Choose the seat you're sitting in. Choose the posture you're sitting in. Is this the, did you choose this posture? Or is this just something you fell into? Choose your posture. You can choose to focus on your breath. See how long you can stay focused on choice while still paying attention to this class. Choose to be with me. Choose to be with the other people around you in the classroom. These aren't just random people. These are the people who are sharing your space today. So the first point in becoming a master of free will is start to choose. Not just making choices that will change something, but choose what is. Choose your parents. How many of us don't choose our parents? But what do you mean, choose my parents? I, how do I make a choice of my parents? The answer is that you can still nevertheless choose them. You notice that you don't choose them all the time. Like, if your father calls and, and you get off the phone quickly, that's not choosing your father. Choose to be a Jew. Now, the way constant works is constant makes you alive. Constant brings to life what otherwise would have been mundane. And that's what we're saying. To be a masterful human being means to be involved in choice. Even when no real decision will be made, you can nevertheless choose what is. Choose your spouse, who you've already married. Choose your kids. Someone could even have someone who is deceased, but they refuse to choose that, meaning meaning they're resisting the fact that they're deceased as if that somehow is going to make it better or bring them back. And therefore they're living in the resistance of what is and that's not a good place to live. So you can even one can even choose to let so-and-so be deceased. Okay, you guys got number one? What's number one? Constant. Number one level of mastering free will is constant. To constantly be involved in choice. Choosing what is. Now how this relates to God, I mean this is class in Torah, Judaism. How this relates to God is, well, guess who's creating the world right now, constantly? God is. God creates the world at all times, constantly. And right now, the world is coming into existence. This moment. Judaism doesn't believe in cause and effect as far as 
like the real picture, meaning God created a world of cause and effect, right? I drop this kippa, it, it drops and lands on the table down below. That's cause and effect. If I drop this pen, yeah, there's cause and effect. But in truth, in the real reality, the world's actually coming into being from absolute nothingness. God is creating the world from scratch at all times. Like a strobe light. Anyone been seen a strobe light where it's flashing on and off? So God is actually strobing the world from off to on at all times from absolute nothingness. You can't see it. It's going on at you know, extreme speed. But the world's coming into being from absolute nothingness at all times. So in truth, when I drop this pen, and you would think that the causality of gravity is making it drop to this other hand, it's actually being recreated. Every you know, millisecond, I don't know what the right small denomination of number would be, but every little millisecond is being recreated as it moves its way down into my hand, which is also being recreated. Everything's being recreated. Everything is brand new. The clothes you're wearing are brand new. They're being created brand new. In fact, the lint that came off of your clothes in the dryer, that lint ball is brand new. It's being created from absolute nothingness into somethingness at all times. This is a very different way of looking at life. It's a much more alive way of looking at life. So part of being a monotheist means getting in touch with the fact that God's creating the world now. So in a graphic, we would make it, it would look like this. So here's God creating the world. Past, present, future. Okay. Now God is above space and time. So God's aware of past, present, and future. But the question is, is God creating right now past, present, and future? Right now? No, it'd be crazy for God to create yesterday. And even though God knows what will be in the future, He's not creating that now. That would be insane. Why, why would God bother creating something that hasn't, doesn't exist yet? It only exists in potential, in idea. So, past, present, and future are, though God's aware of them, He's only creating now. God is not creating a year ago, nor is God creating a year from now. Not an hour ago and not an hour from now, not a minute ago and not a minute from now, not a second ago and not a second from now. Where is God interfacing with creation? Where does God interface with the creation? In the present, right now. So this is the, this present moment is the golden moment. Right now and right now and right now and right now and right now. This is the time to connect to God. This is the God experience. So take a deep breath. Take a moment. 
and get in touch with that. Get in touch with this being the God experience. Stop waiting for it, thinking it's going to happen this Shabbos. Take a moment and relax. God's creating the world now. So for God, this is the God experience. The question is, where are you? Are you spaced out? Or are you mastering free will, getting involved in the constant choosing? And therefore, God's full on, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, God's giving a 10 right now in creating the world at this moment. Question, where are we? Are we waiting for some God experience to happen? Or is this the God experience? So take a moment and experience the God experience. You can open your eyes. Anyone disappointed by the God experience? John, you wasn't disappointing, was it? Some people are disappointed by the God experience. <laughs> you know why? Because they're used to life hitting them in the face. Bam. You know, they're used to... Um, they're, you know what I call them? I call them peak experience junkies. You got that peak experience junkies? A lot of people are peak experience junkies. They're, you know, they're waiting for what we call the it. You know, if they're into guitar, so it's that guitar lead, you know, that the lead guitar player is playing in that concert. If he's a skier, it's that perfect ski day. If he's the surfer, it's that perfect wave. If he's the businessman, it's that great deal. And everyone's waiting for the it so they'll feel truly alive. We also do the same thing with the God experience is we wait for some like lightning bolt that's going to somehow like be the God experience for us. Now, I know a lot of people wouldn't admit like what they truly wanted was a God experience, but deep down all of us want it. Well, guess what? This is the God experience right here, right now. This is the God experience. Learn to get off of this peak experience addiction. You know, weekend warriors or people who work all year for that two-week vacation. Get off of your addiction for the peak experiences and start to get in tune with the subtleties of the moment. Because God exists not just in those peak experiences. You're not going to lose your peak experience. You're still going to have an amazing Shabbos this week. It's going to be awesome. The Shabbos tables are going to be flying. But until Shabbos, it's also very special. This is the interface between God and creation. Right here, right now. In this physical place, in this present time. This is where God interfaces with creation. This is where God interfaces with you. That's your birthright. Grab it. Be in the God experience. Got that, Eli? Got that, Yitzhak?
Good. Okay, so what's number one in mastering free will? Everybody? Constant. Okay, number two in mastering free will is reevaluation. The second level of uh, mastering free will is the ability to reevaluate. I mean, I think that's obvious to all that if you're not reevaluating, if you cannot reevaluate, you've lost your free will. Meaning, if you're stuck in your occupation or you're stuck in any past, anything, anything from your past that was once a decision or maybe you were coaxed into it or maybe you were pressured into it, I don't care how you got into it, but if there's some kind of mode that you're in from the past that you feel no longer free to break out of, you have lost a bit or a large part of what free will is all about. And that's sad because free will is what makes you human, which means you're less human, you're less alive as a human being. One has to be able to reevaluate his life. A person doesn't necessarily have to change anything, just to reevaluate. I have to reevaluate my Judaism. I have to reevaluate my marriage. I have to reevaluate my sports. I have to reevaluate my relationship with my kids. It's what makes it alive. What happens when we don't reevaluate things is they die on us. You're not necessarily making a new decision. When I reevaluate Judaism, it's not that I'm going to go with some other religion all of a sudden or drop religion altogether. But it's a looking at Judaism and saying, like, what is it? What's true to me? It's looking at my marriage and saying, what's, what's amazing about this woman? If, and another way of saying reevaluation in that case is recommitting. Now, as far as reevaluating to actually change something, that's already a bigger thing, and, and you got to have a lot of courage to do it. And you best, you'd best do it with advice. Generally, if you're going to reevaluate a past decision, you do it with advice. One should never reevaluate past decisions, especially the bigger ones, without getting you know very good advice and a lot of sleeping on it. You want to sleep on it a lot. But to make decisions, you know, I get um, people who want to get married, they think they found their spouse. That's a major decision. They need to speak to somebody about that. Uh, someone wants to get divorced, I get that too. That's something that's going to require counseling and they're going to have to really think hard before they reevaluate or make a new decision about who they're married to. So reevaluation basically is getting out of the robotics of the past so that you can either reaffirm what you're into or make a new decision. And by doing reevaluation, by using this step in mastering free will, one can avoid what's called a midlife crisis, where someone gets to their 50s and realizes, what did I do with my life? And now they have to go do something crazy like buy a motorcycle or something. 
they you can avoid the midlife crisis by simply reevaluating as you go is this really the occupation I want is this the city I want to live in is this the way I want my lifestyle to be and you reevaluate it and if you come up with other with findings that lead to a shift and so with a lot of courage you shift takes courage usually takes a lot of support as well if someone wants to reevaluate you're probably going to need some people to support you in the process I find Jews that reevaluate their Judaism and choose to become more observant You've got to get rid of that bag we're recording here um, Jews who are who are are um Ah, Jews who are reevaluating their lifestyles, meaning maybe to become more observant, it's very scary. It's very scary for them. It takes tremendous courage. And the funny thing is, is their Gentile friends where they grew up will all say, you're so courageous. But their Jewish friends will say, you're so weak. What a wimp. You understand that it's the strangest thing. Because it takes every ounce of courage you got, and it takes a lot of support. And you'll find that the success of their shift towards Judaism often depends on the support they receive. I mean, the more time they're in a supportive community of Jews who keep Judaism, who keep the mitzvahs, the more time they're with them, the longer they can last back in an environment where people are not interested at all in their choice of being more observant. So it really takes support to reevaluate. The same thing if someone's making any other decision that is going to be a shift. They're going to need support in that process. Reevaluation has two major pitfalls. Uh, pitfall number one, as we've pretty much explained, is momentum. So two M's in mom- Is there another M there? Or did I spell it right? Momentum. Um, of the past that's obvious we discussed that and the other pitfall is looking good which we've also touched on is it doesn't look good to reevaluate I mean if you reevaluate and make a new choice it's going to rock the boat of your family of your friends of People, just people who know you aren't going to deal with it too well. So that's the other biggie. Of course, the only reason they're not dealing with whatever your choice is well is because what you've done is you've created a vacuum for them. Part of who they are is who you are. Everyone's related in a community, whether it's a family community or a, or a community, a community, a neighborhood. Everyone's depending on everyone else to play some kind of game of these unwritten rules of who you are. And when you reevaluate and make a new decision, you're basically rocking the boat. Not about who you are, you're rocking the boat of who they are. Because they need you to be you, to stay who you were, for them to be them. And when you choose to be someone else, it creates a vacuum for them of who they are. No wonder they get so defensive. But when a Jew makes a decision to become more observant, let's say, 
it does not rock it doesn't create a vacuum for their Gentile friends if anything it may fill a vacuum it may say like ah yeah he's also living true to his religion um, but for their Jewish friends it creates a vacuum creates a crisis of identification lifestyle so we have to have mercy by the way on these people who get defensive and aggressive with us we have to be merciful <laughs> and the, you know they're not being merciful towards us but we got to be merciful back and by the way it's a good passive aggressive tactic if you want to, if you want to use it on them you know when they attack you just say something like you know wow I see this really has you quite upset uh, do you want to talk about it is there something about my choice of being uh, you know living with integrity as a Jew that you need to speak that you want to talk about that's rubbing you the wrong way what's going on it? what's going on for you with this I, I'm just living my life here trying to get as close to truth as possible and seems to have really affected you to the point of where you're even being hurtful you want to talk about it no I don't want to talk about it <laughs> so but that'll get them off your back real quick I have all these I have a great I have like this whole list of uh, the best hits of getting people off your back while you're becoming more observant because it's a good thing to do to get them off your back because you don't need the extra you don't need someone chiseling you away while you're trying to build yourself so so there's uh, I've got great great lines for this kind of stuff of course we get so flustered because it's a very one who's becoming observant gets very uh, he feels very vulnerable and he's too vulnerable to think of the good lines I think I should really print them I think I should print these lines put them on a little card so you can like while you're feeling flushy do you want to talk about why this <laughs> why this is affecting you so strongly to the point where you're actually lashing out at me <laughs> So, anyway, uh, that's why looking good uh, is another pitfall. Is we're we're afraid to reevaluate because because it will rock the boat of our loved ones, rock the boat. Meaning we we're threatening ourselves to lose our support. Human beings need a tremendous amount of support, and you don't want to rock your support group. And your support group's your family. Support groups are friends, but the problem is you have no ability to have. There's no free will there. If you can't reevaluate because your support group is more important than truth, then the search for truth. You realize like this issue of not wanting to rock the boat, not wanting to look bad, or should we say, trying to continue looking good for your family and friends, takes away your access to truth, to your search for truth. You got to decide what the goal is here. Is your goal support, or is your goal truth? Is your goal to continue looking good, or is your goal to maximize your free will, your ability to choose, to be the ultimate human being, to be a masterful human being? So you see, what stands in the way of being a masterful human being is this fear of how it will affect others. But it's not, if you think about it, it's not even being merciful to the others, to your family, to your friends, to not reevaluate life, to not use your free will, to not be a truth seeker. 
just so you don't upset them, that's not helping them either. All it's doing is creating more, more uh, funk, more uh, cess in the cesspool, more. Uh, it's just creating more mediocrity. It, it, it's not helping them. I understand it's upsets. It may upset them for a while, but a year or two later, you become the example. You become a beacon of light of someone who has integrity, who searches for truth and doesn't look back, doesn't look over his shoulder to see who's watching, who may be not supporting him. You become the, you become instantly the leader of your family. Is what you become. Because you're not playing that game. And by the way, the whole time you do it, you do it with intense, flaming love for your loved ones. You express love constantly to reassure them at all times that this has nothing to do with your relationship. This has to do with my search for truth. My desire to be a masterful human being. My desire to ultimately have free will and make choice in my life but boy do I love you and I will always be there for you you have to reiterate that you have to express it with words you have to say don't let my decisions get in the way of our relationship blood is thicker than values my brother it's a sibling blood is thicker than values my blood for you my love for you as my brother is thicker than these choices of values I'm making. I will always be there for you. Nothing will get in the way of us being brothers or siblings. He'll say, oh yeah? You coming to my son's bar mitzvah this Shabbos that's 30 miles away? You say, darn right I am. In fact, I'll be the only one staying in the local hotel there. He says, there is no local hotel. It's in the woods. We'll all be the one camping. There's bears, tigers. Nothing will stand in the way of our relationship. I'll be there. Tell you, my, my mother... When she uh, became Shomer Shabbos, uh, she started keeping Shabbos, so it pretty heavily freaked out the family. Family, and and there were you know all the bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvah, everything, all these family events. And my mom's like you know one of the matriarchs of the family. She's got to be there. So at first, everyone was rolling their eyes as she you know would require kosher food. She'd bring her own food. She would have to book a hotel. She was totally on her own. And she'd come to the event, but everyone would be kind of like, you know, here comes Miss Religious. But a couple years later, that's what I'm saying. A couple years later, you know what happens now when there's a bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah? They, what's that? Yeah, they're, they're, they're booking the hotel for her and paying for it. She's happy to pay for it. They pay for it. They're ordering the glot kosher food that the caterer goes and gets and brings double sealed and stamped and they bring it to her table she's they provide the food they're paying and it's probably double the any other meal there because they're getting it you know extra and the family provides it for her and if she were god forbid to eat non-kosher to say oh 
I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to make waves. They would be today, now, years later, they would be crushed. That like the the one family member who actually is keeping Judaism the way it was created for her to fall on that. Don't do that for us. You're you're our you're our our beacon of light. You're the one who does things right. So I promise for everyone, anyone who's dealing with the tsuris, the pain, the suffering of a lifestyle shift towards the betterment of themselves. I promise you in the end, you will be highly supported even by your detractors now. Later they will consider you someone with integrity, the sagely family member. to him we're out of time so maybe I can pull off three four and five in five minutes maybe pause it once in case we in case we step three yesterday <coughs> step three is the battleground battleground one word or two word Step three is the battleground, and it is the battleground between the soul and the body. The soul is one's godly aspirations, and the body is one's physical aspirations. The body shares the desires of the entire animal kingdom, which is survival and reproduction. Survival and reproduction are basically what guide and govern all movements of animals. So too, humans are highly guided by those that those notions of survival and reproduction. By humans, it's you know we call it uh, I guess money and sexuality. Money and sexuality are what guide human beings. Maybe not in that order. And the body voice, which is. Basically, when I say money, I don't just mean money. I mean your security, financial security, food. It's also the ego, like being noticed and recognized. It's all that's all part of the animal soul. And then you have this godly soul. Your godly soul is much more feminine. By the way, the animal soul is much more masculine. It's more assertive. Wants to assert itself. Wants to be someone. The godly soul. That is what we call the neshama. The godly soul is more feminine. It's more giving. It's not looking for the honor. It's not looking to be recognized. It sees itself and others as one. So the guy at the door is you. He's just the guy who knocks on your door for tzedakah is you. He's just a mirror for you to deal with you in his form and will you, will you see are you going to see him as part of you the godly soul is um, it basically says do the right thing on the bottom level it says do the right thing although it says something else too if you don't listen to it meaning if you don't do the right thing it has a whole other voice you know what the voices are conscience and guilt I'm sorry. Conscience is to do the right thing. 
guilt is when you don't. So that you should know guilt is a very spiritual thing. There's not like a lion psychologist after they kill a wildebeest or something. There's no like lion psychologist that comes to counsel all the lions for killing the wildebeest. There's no conscience. My fish tank, when the bigger fish decide to go after one of the little ones, you know, they don't have to work it out after. You know, deal with it. Conscience and guilt are spiritual. Now, the point of the soul is to connect to God. That's the point of the soul. Without it, you'd have no clue that there was something outside the matrix, outside this physical world. If you had only had your animal voice, you'd be just in the rat race, basically. Survival. Probably wouldn't give anyone anything. It's only the notion of... It's only the soul that gives you the notion of giving, caring, higher values. That's the soul. Barbara, um, we got two more people coming in. Maybe pause it for a second. You see, God is infinite, and this world's finite. Well, we're in this world. We're in this finite world. So the only way we could get out, meaning to relate out to the creator of this finite world, would be that we must have something in us that relates to infinite. Is that clear? I mean, we have to have some kind of fiber optic link that we relate to the infinite with. Otherwise, we are trapped. Talking about fish tanks. We're inside a fish tank with no connection to the outside world. Uh, but we have been given that connection. And that connection is called the soul. or call it the neshama. The soul is our connection to the outside world, i.e. to God. And we're meant to use it as that link, to link to God by that. How do we use it? Well, we use it through prayer, through Torah study, and through mitzvahs. Or Torah, mitzvahs, and prayer. There's the siren. See how close my watch is to being on time. I'm going to add a minute. Is that an atomic clock? Oops. Now it's 11. So, you understand that they, through Torah study, mitzvahs, and prayer, we connect to God. And by the way, the rest of the world does the same thing. Through scholarship, in, you know, in religious circles, through actions that they do, which would be like our mitzvahs, and through prayer. That's the way we connect to the Creator. So what is all this about conscience and guilt? So conscience and guilt is actually for, only for people who ignore their soul. I Meaning people who are using their soul are involved in proactive stuff. They're proactively going to learn Torah like you all did today. They're proactively doing a mitzvah. They're proactively praying. That's the way my neighborhood uses the soul. We are proactive soul users. It's kind of, and that, but conscience and guilt are 
are for people who ignore their souls, so they get conscience and guilt, which is fine. Thank God they have that. If it wasn't for that, they'd be in really big trouble. It's kind of like ABS, uh, you know, anti-brake, skidding brakes. I, I don't use that feature. I drive carefully, you know. I'm using my brakes as they were intended to be used. If, God forbid, there's an emergency, I do need it, the anti-brake. But, you know, can you imagine only using that? <laughs> I'd hate to be your passenger. But, like, you pull up, you know, you're pulling up to the light, you know, behind a couple cars. You you get to, like, within four feet of their bumper without even touching your brakes. And then the last thing, you just slam on your brakes as hard as you can. You know, your passenger's like, ah! And, of course, you don't hit their bumper because your tires don't skid. You have ABS. And then you look over at your passenger and you're like, what's the matter with you? And you're like, what's the matter with me? You didn't stop. He said, I did stop. I have ABS, man. Chill out. So, meaning the world's basically using their ABS systems. Everyone's ignoring their souls and they've been relegated to conscience and guilt. Conscience and guilt is just the last step of like keeping you from falling out through the bottom of the barrel altogether. Let me explain. Conscience is saying, usually for people who are ignoring their souls, it's saying, don't do that. That's the voice. Don't do that. Everyone listen to the voice in your head for a second, by the way. you got to identify that voice. Take a moment and listen to that voice. Voice in my head? What voice in my head? What's he talking about a voice in my head? That's the voice in your head. What I'm talking about is your thoughts, your thinking. So you're thinking, you actually get thoughts saying, don't do that. It's like the car bumpers in America that beep when you get near the bumper behind you. Beep, beep, beep. Let's say this is something you shouldn't do. So there is beeping. Beep, 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 beep. When you hear that beeping, you're supposed to say, hmm, that's my soul saying not to do something. At which point a smart person would back off. But we live in a society that says, if it feels good, do it. And it's constantly reiterated. It feels good, do it. Spoil yourself. Enjoy. You know, do it for yourself. It feels good. You know, and everyone's brainwashing us into doing what feels good. And what happens is everyone keeps hitting the bumpers because they've stopped even listening to their ABS system. The last step was the ABS system. But even the ABS system, no one listens to. The the thing that keeps you from hitting stuff you shouldn't be hitting. And and I, I have a whole class, an hour class called the the Western, the West's War Against the Conscience. <coughs> and it goes through all the history. It's an amazing class. It goes through all the history of the West's War Against the Conscience. That's why the Greeks like hated the Jews because the Jews were all about the soul and conscience and um, all the way through Christianity, you know, he died for your sins, so don't worry about it. Right? Don't worry about what you did this week, just come in and confess and he died for your sins anyway. You don't have to worry about it. It's all that's Christianity is part of the West's war against the conscience. And all the way to I mean, even religion tried it. Mm-hmm. And then but then they were in big trouble with the with the, you know, the Enlightenment when kind of Europe got out from under the thumb of the church, you know, which was seemingly a good thing, except now the conscience. What do we do with the conscience? Comes along Darwin. 
Oh, that's okay. We're we're animals. That conscience, just your imagination. Of course, it can only last so long until Hitler finally came along and said, a social Darwinist, and said, you know, conscience is. Uh, I'm here to eradicate the conscience, and the, where we got conscience from, anyways, from Jews and. And if I get rid of all the Jews, we got rid of the conscience. If I miss one Jew, even a baby Jew, from there it will start again, he said. He said that in Mein Kampf. So it is all, the whole war of the West is against the conscience. That's why they hate us, because we're, the Jews are the embodiment of the conscience of Western civilization. And that's their issue with us. They'll never admit that. But that is their major issue with Jews. And you don't even have to be an observant Jew. You don't have to look like me. You just have to be named Schwartz or something. And the very fact that you exist when really you were supposed to have disappeared with the destruction of the Second Temple when Western religion began, you know, just your existence is a reminder that you are the conscience that they don't want to deal with. I mean, you'd want to kill me too if I followed you around all Shabbos telling you what you can't do. You know, we represent the you can't do that. Just as far as guilt is concerned, let's say you do make a mistake and you hit that wall, you did what felt good and you hit the wall. So what happens for many people is they get stuck here. When they hit the wall, they just kind of get glued on. Can you imagine you, you you didn't listen to the beep, 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 and you parked on someone's bumper? You know, you pull up in front of a cafe, you want to go get a coffee, and you pull up, you back your car up right onto someone's, like, 19, 2009 Mercedes, and you just land right on their bumper. You put it in park, you're like, okay, let's go. And your passenger's like, you're, you're on his bumper. He's like, I mean... That's okay. I mean, why do they call it a bumper? I, we bumped and let's go get some coffee. You can't park on their bumper. So we would never park on someone's bumper. If you hit someone's bumper, you'd definitely pull off and hope he didn't see. But notice when you do something wrong, you do park on the bumper. You start beating yourself up. You start getting all these voices saying, you good for nothing, how could you have done that? And you can really go into a further tailspin because think about it. Once you did that, so you know what the voice says next? That's your voice saying, you dirty, no good. You know, you know what the voice says then? Then it says, well, since you already did that, what other behavior is available? You know, now that, now that this becomes your new morals, moral ground that you've fallen to, well, what other actions does that open up for you? That's what it says. You see, when you bump and you break your covenant with yourself, there's a covenant with yourself. We're not even discussing Jewish law here. Every human being has a conscience. And when we break that covenant, it creates a gap. It creates a space, an empty space in our hearts. Well, nature doesn't like vacuums. Nature doesn't like that empty space. And what we do is, instead of filling it with what normally would be tshuva, get off the wall, instead of filling it with tshuva, what we do is we fill it with all kinds of other garbage. And does it fill with the other garbage? 
when we start filling with other stuff, other ego stuff, or go shopping and buy stuff you don't need, or or uh, other behavior that's also of the same kind of body nature, does it fill? It doesn't fill. It widens. And what many people resort to after the pain gets enough is they resort to um, medication uh, in the form of uh, alcohol, uh, marijuana, and all the way all the way to prescribed medication as well. So my my class on the West War against the conscience, because after you know Hitler's already sixty years ago. Um, what now? In the end, you know what it is? If it feels good, do it. That comes with billions of dollars of advertising, you know, marketing to get us all to do what feels good because that runs the whole machinery with our money. If it feels good, do it. Well, what am I going to do now? Because now I don't feel good because I blew it. Well, now it's Miller time or it's Prozac time or it's Glenn Fittich time or it's my medical marijuana time or it's you know you understand it's an amazing concept but all of this has to do with the, the, the it all started with ignoring the soul which we don't do in my community in my community we are proactively using the soul with Torah mitzvahs and prayer for those who've ignored their soul they're going to be relegated to conscience and guilt and you can do well with that and you just got to learn to listen and when you hit don't stay there. Get off the wall. Get off the bumper. Do the four steps of tshuva, the simple steps of tshuva, which are stop, say what you did to God, not to anyone else. Stop doing it. Say it to what you did. Express your regret. Had you had the clarity, you'd never have done it. That's the regret. And then commit to the future. Who knows what the future will bring, but at least now commit to the future. Do those four steps and get back to yourself. Don't sit on someone's bumper. Get off the bumper. Get back to the soul. To be continued tomorrow, we'll do steps four and five. Shalom, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you very much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.